That being said, some updates that you'll see inside that mobile app, uh, you'll, you'll see some updates on a lot of the different missions work that our church has been able to take part in that's going on around the globe. Really exciting stuff. You'll see an update from Huala Nakua, um, our sex trafficking uh, ministry that is occurring on the island of Hawaii. You'll, you'll see uh, a celebratory video that was specifically made just for our church about the amount of money that you chose in obedience to God to give to so ministries in Mexico, helping uh, orphans and widows. They have a phenomenal, uh, they, got, they had a phenomenal, um, they got a lot of money from us and it was really exciting and it was worth uh, celebrating. So they made us a video in thank you for that. That is there, uh, make sure you check that out. Uh, the Wongs, Johnny and Jordan are gonna be with us at the end of August, but you'll see a little bit of information about what it'll look like for us as a family to welcome them home and support them as they take a break from their ministry in the Basque country, which is a region kind of between Spain and France. And then uh, a little bit more information you'll find there about our upcoming Financial Peace University, how to use your money in the mission of God's kingdom. And uh, we've got a women's retreat coming up. There's a ton of stuff happening. And there's no way that I would be able to tell you about all the information. And so that's why we've got newsletters that are coming to your email. We've got that information on the app. Lots of different options for you to get that info. I'd encourage you to jump on board with that. That being said, I get to continue our message series in the book of Colossians. So whatever you use uh, to read scripture, get there. If you've got a, a physical Bible, open it up to Colossians chapter 1. If you're using it on your phone, that's fine. Open it up and stand with me. The reason why we are doing this is because we want to remind ourselves through using our bodies that what we are about to read are God's words, and they're worthy of reverence as a result. So if you can stand, please do. We're going to read Colossians chapter 1. We're going to work with verses 19 through verses 23. Colossians 1, 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. God, we pause having read your words and we ask that by your spirit, you would help us to understand them now. These words are the words on which we are building our lives. Help us to see your message clearly, that we can follow you in a way that pleases you with our thoughts and our actions. God, we give you this time for your glory and for your purposes. Amen. You can be seated. So, as I said, we're continuing a, uh, a series here in the book of Colossians. And just in case you haven't been with us, just a quick, uh, a quick word by way of some context. Because anytime you want to try to understand the text of Scripture, you always, always, always must understand the fact 
that it is being spoken in a context of a larger idea and even larger story of God's purposes. So as we look at the book of Colossians, what purpose did it serve? Ultimately, it was a message from Paul the Apostle to a church that he did not plant and only had some relationship with. But message had gotten to him by the church planters that there are some false views that were trickling into the life of the church. And those false views needed to be addressed. So Paul wrote this letter to that church. One of those false views, or, and we'll talk about a few of them this morning as we go through the passage, but one of those false views was an improper view of Jesus, which brings us to kind of the literary context, what's been going on in the verses before the verses that we just read. The idea that Paul has been sharing in the verses starting from uh, chapter 1, uh, mostly from verse 15 and on, is Paul wanting to point out the supremacy and preeminence of Jesus. Really giant words, and sometimes I, I like using giant words because I had to pay a lot of money to get them in college, so I'm going to drop them in not to impress you, but because I'm trying to get my money's worth. But ultimately what that just means is that Jesus was supremely important. There is no other man that has ever walked the earth that is more important than Jesus of Nazareth for a variety of reasons. Paul shares many of them. Jesse shared some of that information last week. I get to share some of that information this week. That Jesus stands as the preeminent one before all, holding all things together. He's the primary of the church. He's the first death defeater. So as we come to our passage, starting in verse 19, the question that we ask of this passage and the question that Paul is trying to answer is how is it that Jesus has come to hold this place of primacy? How is it that Jesus has become so important? Verse 19, we see, because in him, in Jesus, was pleased for all the fullness to dwell, the fullness of God. That word isn't, the, the word God isn't actually in the text. It just shares the fullness to dwell. But we know that Paul is talking about the fullness because he says almost the exact same thing in chapter 2, verse 9. Go ahead and if you need to flip a page or scroll down a little bit, go to chapter 2, verse 9. What you'll see in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, is that Jesus is again the subject of, for Paul's writing, and Paul writes, for in him, the whole fullness of deity, where the, some translations might say the divine nature dwells bodily. It's almost the same wording structure that we have in chapter 1, verse 19, and we find there that all the fullness of the divine nature is dwelling bodily. This word fullness that you're seeing there in both of those verses being discussed, originally, this word was used for ship's cargo. It was, it was meant to be everything that's listed on the manifest of a ship. All the things that made the voyage of that ship, that unique voyage, that was the fullness, the pleroma. And that word, Paul is using to say that all of those things that make up God were in Jesus. Jesus was not any normal human being. There was something unique about him in that the entire divine nature dwelt inside Jesus. But 
one of the things that we see in 2.9 that's really remarkable and is going to end up being one of the major things I want to point out to you in this text. Both in chapter 122 and in chapter 2.9, Paul writes a redundant sentence. And this redundancy is addressing one of the wrong ideas I mentioned to you that he felt that he needed to address. You'll notice that Paul said, all the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus bodily. Now, that may not necessarily strike you as really important, but I can tell you that from Paul's perspective, it was immensely important for him to talk to the church at Colossae about the concept that God dwelt in human form. Because one of the wrong ideas that was starting to filter into the church, and you can see where it comes from, if you can think about the totality of the divine nature, all the awesome things that makes God who God is, it would seem impossible that that could be in a human being. Doesn't seem possible. And it actually became a viewpoint that was starting to gain traction in the Colossian church. Theologians now look at this idea and call it docetism, which is just a fancy word for saying that it seemed that Jesus was human. We thought that Jesus was fleshly and had a fleshly body. Paul is intense, intentionally being redundant in the way that he writes this text to say, no, no, no. It wasn't that we thought that he was human. It's not that it seemed that he was fleshly. Jesus actually was the divine nature dwelling fleshly, which is a good time to point out the astonishing message of this text. Let's look again at verses 19 and 20. Because in him it was pleased all the fullness to dwell and by means or through him to reconcile all things unto himself. There are two things according to verse 19 that pleased God that he wants to talk about in this passage. Two things that please God. One, to dwell bodily and two, to reconcile. Now, if you've been around church for a long time, you've heard both these ideas before, and they may not necessarily sound super impressive to you. That's okay. Sometimes with the regularity and trying to drive home points over and over again, they, they start to kind of lose a little bit of their luster. In the first version of the message as I was preparing uh, to share this week, I, was, I ended up spending probably a solid half of the message talking about the idea that human beings aren't worth saving. I threw out that message because I found that, number one, that'd be a super downer for a Sunday morning. Number two, I think what the world needs a little bit less of is people and preachers on Sunday morning standing up talking to you about what a disaster the world is. You probably don't need much more information about that. Probably from your own individual experience, you could come up with a couple of examples that would show that humans aren't quite what they should be. Now, that being said, it's still really important to recognize it. So what I did is I'm going to limit myself to just a couple of sentences that I wrote down about this idea so I don't talk about it forever. But it is immensely impressive to think about the fact that the full divine nature dwelt bodily in Jesus. Here's why. I suspect that if it doesn't shock you that the God of the universe would lower himself to become a common human, you have either not lived enough time 
or you have not lived attentively enough to realize how pathetic human beings really are. We were made with so much capability, far surpassing anything else that dwells or exists on earth. But we spend most of our days obsessed with our own well-being, fighting with one another, jockeying for importance, and pursuing all kinds of common filth. It's as if we're a tool capable of creating and sustaining deep goodness and beauty, but we spend all of our time using that tool as a hammer to crush everything around us and ultimately ourselves. Friends, we were made with such magnificent capacity that has gone completely and horrifyingly wrong. And when you spend a little bit of time thinking about the reality of how dark things have gotten, it is a shock to think that God was pleased to dwell bodily. Think of how good it is in the presence of God all the time where things are absolutely perfect, where there is nothing going wrong, where everything that your soul desires on a daily basis exists on every single moment, always has been and always will. And yet it pleased God to dwell bodily. When you start to actually think about that phrase, when you start to think about that idea, you start to get the importance of this, this kind of a catchphrase maybe that you've heard before, that God loves you the way that you are, but loves you enough to not let you stay that way. You ever heard that phrase or an idea expressed like that before? It's an important one to stick in your brain because a lot of people get really confused sometimes. They go, well, God loves everybody exactly the way that they are. Yes, that is absolutely true. And he loves you so much that he's not going to let you stay that way. You see, it pleased God to dwell bodily because he could fix our problems. Which brings us to the second thing that we see in the text that's pleasing God. That by dwelling bodily, he got to reconcile all things to himself. Look again in verse 20. And by means or through him, he reconciled all things unto himself, making peace by means of the blood of his cross, whether the things on earth or the things in heaven. If you're familiar with the biblical story, and one of the things that's fantastic about the Bible is the narrative that continues to weave itself through page after page of scripture. But if you look at the biblical story, you start to see that this message that Paul is talking about in Colossians has been told from the very beginning of the story. When Adam and Eve sensed that they disobeyed God, what did they do? Do you remember? When Adam and Eve realized that things are going wrong, what was their first impulse? I heard somebody say it. It, it rhymes with Schmid. Hid, yes. <laughs> they hid from God. They hid. This was the divine creature, the God of the universe that they had had a personal relationship with on a daily basis, interacting with no thought whatsoever 
that there might be some reason for which they need to have some separation. And the moment that they decided that they should do something other than what God had instructed, they got this sense, I need to hide. And not only do I need to hide, I'm, I'm thinking that there's something weird about the way that I look, and I'd kind of like you to not look at me anymore. They hid their nakedness. Not only did they hide themselves, but suddenly they thought that they were naked. And the text actually points out to them, God says, hey, uh, who told you you were naked? How was that even a thing yet? We hadn't even discussed this as part of our relationship. Why is it that all of a sudden you think you need to hide? Why is it that all of a sudden you're realizing that you, you have this appearance that's different than me? And what was the result? What ended up happening as a result of this interaction? The first animal was slain so that that nakedness could be covered. You remember that? God made them some clothes. Some, I mean, way nicer than what models would be wearing today, I'm sure. But the first animal dies as a result of their recognition that they were different from and separate from God because they had gone in a different direction than what God had told them to go. And this began the story of God repairing and reconciling our relationship with him that needed to be done by him and him alone. And it entails that something else has to die. Theologians call this a substitutionary death, that there would be a substitution instead of the individual who did wrong needing to die, that God would find a suitable substitute. This led to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament where countless animals were slain to communicate the severity of man's separation from God and the need for that substitute sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews drives this home better than I can. So we're going to read just real quickly in Hebrews chapter 9, what the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 9, verse 11 through 14. If you would take a look at it. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled person with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more? Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? What Paul is pointing out in this text is that God has always been in the business of reconciling. And it was pleasing to God not just to dwell bodily, but in so doing to be able to reconcile in a way that nothing else could ever have possibly accomplished. One more thing I want to point out to you in verse 20 before we move on is that in this text, in the way that it's originally written by Paul, three different times Paul uses a construction that's best, uh, that's, that's best uh, translated as through him or by means of him, that by the works of Jesus, Paul three times in just one verse wants to drive home that the only way 
that man could have been reconciled was through Jesus. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, that there is one God and one mediator between God and man. Who does he say that is? Well, this is that was the softball answer, people. It's like the, the first Sunday school answer you learn, Jesus, right? And if that doesn't work, you go with the Bible, right? You remember those are the two answers. Jesus was the answer. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Nothing else, nothing else can do that reconciling work that needs to be done. Verse 21. And you all were formerly estranged and hostile in the way of your understanding and in your works of evil. One of the things uh, that just by way, you might hear me kind of slip it out, that the English language, the way that we speak it, at least here and in all the communities in which I've lived, we don't have a, a difference between you as one person and you as everyone. They don't have it on the West Coast, which is why I feel like we need to redeem from the South the word y'all. I, I would just say that I, I find that to be an immensely useful word because now you know that I'm, I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about y'all, okay? And that's what Paul is talking about in verse 21. And y'all, being formally estranged and hostile in your way of thinking, of understanding, in your works of evil, the, 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 um, the translator of the paraphrase called The Message, his name is Eugene Peterson, a phenomenal pastor and a loving man. When he uh, translated this idea, he said, and you all, or y'all, I'm sure Eugene would have been with me, and y'all are a case study of this reconciliation. You used to be alienated, separated, estranged, excluded from the community. Estranged is not a word that I, I commonly hear. I don't know if you commonly hear this word. Normally, the only time that I use it is when I'm having to talk to somebody about the fact that they don't talk to their ex-spouse anymore. We are estranged. That's normally when I would hear it. And I, the, the reality is, I feel like that conveys the meaning in a very deep way, that you used to have this loving, committed relationship where you're willing, you were willing to do everything for one another, and now you don't even talk to one another. And if you end up texting one another, it results in a police report and a restraining order. That's normally how the word estranged ends up being used. Paul says, y'all were estranged at one point. From God. When you commit treason, Jesse referred to it as cosmic treason. I love that title. When we commit treason, we place ourselves outside of the community. We don't belong in the community anymore. When you commit treason against the United States of America, what's the penalty? It's death, just in case you didn't know. Uh, maybe, maybe you don't know. Like some of these folks that are like they're pop culture people, they have to like hide in other countries because they know that if, they, if they're here and they get convicted of treason, they'll be killed. You, you don't get to stay in the community when you commit treason. You have been estranged from the community. Now, you might think, well, you know, I, I actually never did that, so I'm good to go. I don't know, maybe, maybe you think, I, I never committed any treason, right? I, ne I never did anything specifically to try to betray God. I've never, I I've never, and then I hear this all the time, right? Like, I'm a good enough person. I've never, and then insert, like, 
grotesque sin here at the end of the sentence, right? As if the standard for perfection is, well, I've never killed anybody, right? Have you heard that before? I've never murdered. I've never, I've never cheated on anyone or whatever the case is. We, we hear this and we think these things all the time. Paul says that that definition isn't going to work as he describes us in, in verse 21, that we were hostile in our ways of understanding and we were living in evil works. You see, it's as basic as this. The moment that we forsake the mission of the true king and pursue our own mission for our own goals outside of his design, we turn our back on the king and we make ourselves our own king or queen. We commit treason by making our own kingdoms. And I see this tendency in myself every single day. I think if you think about it, you would see it as well. I certainly see it as I have to do the stuff that I do for work, but I see it all the time where these things that really aren't a big deal, people obsess and go crazy over them. Why? How dare that person speed through my neighborhood? Right? Some of you are like, oh, shoot, I made that call. Right? <laughs> but how dare? Why? Because my kingdom is sovereign and I rule it with an iron fist and all my subjects will be safe. And all of them will drive with the utmost of care and concern for those who are in my kingdom. Right? Okay, this is a, uh, a, an over-the-top example, but the reality is... If you're honest with yourself, you have little things where you realize the stuff that irks you, I am irked, it irks you most of the time, not because you have some righteous indignation against the sin of mankind. It irks you because it's going against you as king or queen in your kingdom. At least it does for me. We think this way. We are hostile to the true king Instead, trying to set up our own kingdoms and caring only about our own kingdoms. But friends, verse 22 brings us great news. 22, but now he reconciled in his body of flesh through death to present y'all holy and without blemish, irreproachable in front of or before him. Great news, friends. You no longer have to live in your pathetic, puny kingdom that you try to build for yourself on a daily basis. You don't have to do that anymore. And I, I would encourage you to recognize how good of news that actually is for you. That Jesus in his body of flesh, which we've already pointed out why that was so important for Paul to write it that way, for Jesus in his fleshly body presents us, and then he gives us three descriptions. You see these three descriptions? The first one here, he presents us as holy before him. This is probably the word that you're most familiar with if you've been around churches. And yet I have a feeling that sometimes, at least I do, I have a tendency to think about this word the wrong way. That holy does have this idea of moral perfection. It does carry that idea, but there's something more about it. That holy, especially, and I would encourage you to do this if you want to start diving deeper into an understanding of these things, start seeing how those, that word holy is used 
as God describes what the temple is going to look like and what's going to be inside the temple in the book of Leviticus, in the book of Deuteronomy, that holy meant that this thing that you have been set apart for a special purpose, that for you to be made holy before God means that what you were originally designed to be flourishes for the special purpose for which God has created you. The only way that I could try to understand this idea a little bit better was, I don't know if your parents were this way, maybe some of you were that way, I know we're in the midst of a major generational shift, but my mom had special plates. You remember the special plates? Anybody with me? Anyone else's mom had to just kind of wave at me. Okay, this is a thing of the past, apparently. So my mom had a set of plates that I was not allowed to use for my daily toast. I couldn't do that. If I did that, the plate would be taken from me, the back of my head would be sore, and that plate would go back to the special plate place. She had a piece of furniture she referred to as a hutch where the special plates were kept. You would think that I grew up in like this wealthy community. I grew up in like downtown LA, but like, but my mom had these special plates that only came out for special occasions. Like when the queen of England was coming over for dinner or something along those lines. <laughs> special plates that you weren't allowed to use. Those were the holy plates in the Beers household. Those were only used for special purposes. And if you use them for common purposes, bad things would happen to you. This word holy, I think, carries that connotation that you need to try to understand. That you were meant to stand before God holy through the reconciling work of God, through what Jesus did in his body. He made you holy. You now get to take part in the special purpose for which you were designed, not just to hold a Pop-Tart, you were there to be the fine china that was there when the special guests came over. I don't know what that special guest is. I don't know what God's plan uniquely is for you, but I can guarantee you that it is way more awesome than anything that you could possibly ever devote yourself to. And through the reconciling work of the fleshly body of Jesus, we can once again regain that purpose. The second description in verse 22 of how Jesus, through his fleshly body and his reconciling work, what did he make us? He made us without blemish. This word was a word that was used by Jews and was very and crucially driven into them from a young age. Because if you grew up in a sacrificial system, there was only one type of sacrifice that could be made. You couldn't find the, you couldn't bring the animal with the broken leg or the weird wart on its face or the tongue hanging out the side of its, or the googly eyes. You had to bring an, an animal that was perfectly without blemish. This was the prime example of a sacrifice. The description of what we become before God is absolutely perfect. We were not this, just in case you didn't know that. You can't be this. There's nothing that you can do to get yourself to that point. But when we accept the reconciling work of Jesus in our lives, we become without blemish. Oh, this is good news, especially for those of us that are well aware of how blemished we actually are. 
And this without blemishedness gets a third description that becomes even more significant. This last word that we are irreproachable. This word was almost uniquely used by Paul in the New Testament. But if you break it down into the parts of what it is in Greek, the idea that's there is that you are uncalloutable. That literally, there is no charge that can be brought against you if you stand in the reconciling work of Jesus. No charge. And Paul writes this elsewhere. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Right? Maybe you're familiar with that idea that literally there isn't a possible way that someone could go to God when you are in Christ. There isn't a possible way somebody can go to God and be like, hey, uh, God, do you realize what so-and-so did here? It doesn't work. Because when God now looks at you, having been reconciled through the body of flesh of Jesus Christ, when he sees you, he sees the perfection of Jesus. So much better than trying to run my own kingdom. So much better. Here's the thing, though. Verse 23. The next word or the first word that pops up in verse 23, uh, depending upon what version that you have, it might say if. Um, some versions have the word in as much, which I would certainly prefer for this for this verse, because there is certainly a way in which we could read this verse and think that or try to infer the idea that we have to be the ones that make all of this happen, that we have to be the ones that through our actions continue to allow all of these great things that Paul has just described in verse 22, that we have the responsibility of making sure that those things stay applicable to us. The argument that ends up popping up from this idea, I, I don't know if you have been around church long enough to have heard people talking about this or discussing this idea of can you lose your salvation? That's kind of the, the heading under which this discussion would occur. And though there is definitely debate on this topic, there are Christians on both sides of the fence, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about that idea. I want to share share this idea with you, and then read the verse again. If God is the only one who can make this process happen in the first place, and verse 17 of chapter 1 tells us that all things are being held together by God, I personally am very suspicious of an idea that states that at some point it becomes my responsibility to continue to keep myself in good standing before God. And I know that this idea comes very contrary to a lot of American thinking, where we have to do the things ourselves. We've got to be the ones that are responsible for it. Read verse 23 again, and then let me share with you what I think that Paul's trying to get across. Inasmuch as you all remain or dwell in the faith, you have been, you have been established and steadfast and not removed from the hope of the gospel, which you all have heard which is being proclaimed in creation under heaven, that for which I, Paul, have been made a servant. It would seem to me that what Paul is trying to communicate by verse 23 is this, that only those who submit to Christ's work of reconciliation, those who are in him, those who are in the faith, 
It is only those, and then the key, the key phrase here is have been established. Now, I'm going to get a little bit nerdy here, but try to stick with me, okay? There's a, there's a verb tense here, Greek. The, way, the language in which this letter was written, there are lots of different verb tenses, right? There's the active tense in which I'm doing something and the passive tense in which something is being done to me. There's the future tense in which we're talking about something in the future. There's the past, all, all kinds of different tenses and moods and voices, and I'm not going to give you a Greek grammar lesson. However, it is important for us to point out the fact that Paul writes in this phrase what is translated in English in the perfect tense, we have been established. The perfect tense for Greek is Paul writing that something has happened in the past and it continues on into the future. Friends, what I'm trying to convey, like I said, it's a little nerdy, I'm sorry. What I'm trying to convey to you is that what Paul is writing here is that something has been done for you in the past and it's going to go on forever. We have been established and steadfast and cannot be removed from the hope of the gospel. None of the benefits of our position before God can be had without the acceptance of Christ's work in our lives. And the only thing that we can do, the only thing, friends, that we must do is allow him to do what he desires to do with us. That's it. Isn't that beautiful? You don't even have to run an effective kingdom. You could set your kingdom to the side, join the kingdom for which you were originally designed to be a part, and live for the purposes for which you were originally designed. And all you need to do is just allow him to do it. That's it. There's a beautiful thing when we then look at what Jesus does for us. The musicians are going to come up and we're going to respond back to God in light of this truth. But I want to I finish with us understanding the beauty of what's being said to you in this text. That Jesus lowered himself to take on human flesh and to do in human flesh that which we could never do for ourselves. And he continues to do this for his followers even now. So for those of us here this morning who are still living for your own kingdom, let me encourage you with these two words. Stop it. Stop it. Nothing good will come from it. Remove your paper crown. No one else is impressed by it anyway. Submit yourself to the true king. Find the fulfillment that you've always sought. For those of you who have already submitted, don't pull your paper crown back out of the trash. It belonged there to begin with. Live for your king. He has reconciled you despite your treason. Live for him. Let God's views become yours. Let God's priorities become yours. Let God's character become how you strive to interact with the surrounding world. Let God's intentions for your identity become your identity. He dwelt 
bodily to reconcile you to himself that you might fulfill the mission that he designed for you. He gets the glory and you get the fulfillment of what you were originally designed for. It is a win-win. Put the paper crown back in the trash. Holy Spirit, it is only by your power that I feel like we can, we can do this. Because I know that in and of myself, I am grasping for as much power as I possibly can. Jesus, I praise you for your work that now I stand before you holy without blemish, uncall-outable because of what you've done. We praise you, great King, that you lowered yourself to come in human flesh and to deal with all of our nonsense and our problems. Jesus, you are worthy of everything that we could give to you. Father, please draw us close to your heart. that we might give you the honor that you deserve. Amen. Hey, friends, let's stand together again and <clears throat> sing a few songs to close. And sometimes we kind of rush out of here and it's an opportunity for you to, to hear the word of God, maybe to, in prayer, come back to the Lord and say, Lord, thank you for revealing something in my life. A time of confession time of proclamation and praise celebration as we sing this next song it talks about that God is our victory may we come behold the works of our king Lord you are the God of Jacob that you are fierce and great Lord the Lord of hosts Lord, may we be reminded in this song of your greatness. Oh, come behold the works of God, the nations at his feet. He breaks the bow and bends the spear and tells the wars to cease. Oh, mighty one of Israel, you are on our side. We walk by faith in God who burns the chariots with fire. Lord of hosts, you're with us, with us in the fire, with us as a shelter, with us in the storm. You will lead us. Through the fiercest battle, oh, where else will we go with the Lord of hope? Oh, God of Jacob, fierce and great, you lift your voice to speak. The earth it bows and all the mountains move into the sea. Oh, Lord, you know the hearts of men, still you let them live. Oh, God, who makes the mountains melt, can wrestle us and Oh, God, who makes the mountains melt, can wrestle us and win. 
What a pose. The Lord of hosts show with us, with us in the fire, with us as a shelter, with us in the storm. Oh, you will lead us through the fiercest battle. Oh, where else where we go with the Lord of Oceans roar, you are the Lord of all, the one who calms the wind and waves, makes my heart be still. Though the earth gives way, the mountains move into the sea, the nations rage, I know my God is in control. Though the oceans roar, you are the Lord of all, the one who calms the wind and waves, makes my heart be still. Though the earth gives way, the mountains move into the sea, the nations rage, I know my God is in control. Lord of hosts, you're with us, with us in the with us as a shelter, with us in the storm, you will lead us through the fiercest battle. Oh, where else will we go with the Lord of and the shelter with us in the storm you will lead us through the fiercest battle oh where else will we go with the lord of hope amen lord you are the victory and you are good Let's sing again. I want to go back to his mercy is more for church as we were reminded of his greatness, his goodness. And uh, may you minister to others through your voices. Let's sing together. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Since they are many, His mercy is more. What a love could remember, no wrongs we had done. Omniscient, all-knowing, He counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. His 
His mercy is more Stronger than darkness New every morn Our sins they are many His mercy is more Well, patience what patience would weigh as we constantly roam? What Father so tender is calling us home? He welcomes the weak and the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. His mercy more stronger than darkness new every morn our sins they are many his mercy is riches what riches of kindness he lavished on us his blood was the payment his life was the cause we stood beneath the debt we could never afford our sins they are many his mercy is more together church praise the Lord his mercy is more stronger than darkness new every morn our sins they are many his mercy is more just your voices here we go praise the sing this acapella guys so I invite you to lift your voices in adoration and praise as we sing this together a mighty fortress is our God our bulwark never failing our helper he amid the flood our mortal hills prevailing 
For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Did we? Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right men on our side. The man of God's own choosing. Does ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is He, the Lord of hosts, His name, from age to age the same. And He must win the battle. You sing verse 3 together. And through this world with devils filled. Should threaten to undo us. We will not fear, for God hath will. His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word befell him. This last verse together, friends. That word. That word above all earthly powers. No thanks to them abided. The Spirit and the gifts are ours. Through him who with us sided. Let goods, let goods and kinders go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Our God is good, amen? Lord, we rest upon that promise that you reign on high. Lord, that you will come back for us someday, that you have overtaken the enemy. You have crushed the, the head of the serpent. Lord, you have given us victory. Lord, may we walk in it, knowing, Lord, that you are our strength. You have gifted us. Uh, more importantly, with your Holy Spirit that resides in our hearts. Lord, may we trust in you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. May the Lord bless you, folks. Thanks for coming today. Take care.